My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I just am trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate. Put everything in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me, Jim Kramer. Wall Street can factor in pretty much everything instantly. But today you can see how hard it was to calculate the impact of countless unarmed Israeli citizens being massacred. I mean, how the heck could we rally with the Dow gaining 197 points, S&P climbing 0.63%, and the Nasdaq advancing 0.39%? Maybe it's because there seemed to be no direct economic consequence for the United States. Maybe it's because the markets have become desensitized to war after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But if you look at the timeline of today's trading, we started off the red. We traded lower all morning. And then in early afternoon, we started rallying. Why? Because Fed Board of Governors Vice Chair Philip Jefferson made dovish comments that immediately pushed stocks higher. He told us that the Fed is, quote, in a position to proceed carefully in assessing the extent of any additional firming that may be necessary, end quote. Jefferson then continued, quote, we are in a sensitive period of risk management where we have to balance the risk of not tightening enough against the risk of being too restrictive, end quote. Hey, previously, the Fed was much more worried about the risk from tightening too little. So that statement was all it took for people to grasp that the rate hikes might be on hold for the moment. It was that statement, not the horrific slaughter in Israel that controlled today's action. Now, it's not like nothing happened. These war crimes by Hamas are unprecedented in their scale, and we're now looking at an open war situation between Israel and the Gaza, Gaza Strip. But Wall Street's accustomed to dealing with a lack of peace in the Middle East, isn't it? Twenty-odd years ago, it seemed like there was a new suicide bombing every week, yet our stock market still did fine. Sure, defense stocks went higher in recognition of what's going on. Unlike the tug of war over Ukrainian aid going on right now in the capital, I'm sure that our government will do what's necessary to protect its friends from its enemies. The U.S. mobilized a full-scale resupply of the Israelis in the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago, something that saved them from being overrun by all sides. I'm confident that we'll do so again if necessary, hence the run of defense stocks throughout the day. I doubt it'll come to that, though. The reaction in some moments seemed downright counterintuitive, with the oils and defense stocks soaring, cybersecurity stocks faring well, too, while the rest of the market initially got pummeled. Then, with Vice Chair Jefferson's comments, the buyers shrugged off the Hamas invasion and returned to the same opportunity they saw on Friday. So we caught a rally centered on the day's biggest winners. I think some of the confusion came down to the fact that there was no bond trading today, thanks to Columbus Day. Uh, everybody's taking their cue from bonds, but uh, they were totally lost today. They didn't know what to do. If the bond market were open today and interest rates had gone higher, thanks to the rallies in oil and natural gas, then I think the stock market would absolutely not have had this rally. But the presumption was rates would have gone lower, hence the rally, because of the statements from the Fed. Now, we'll know more tomorrow when the bond market reopens. But yes, the algorithms that drive the linkage could extend today's gains. I understand some of the market's confusion about the war in the Middle East. The invasion's closest analog, the Yom Kippur War of 1973, caused oil to spike as OPEC decided to boycott any country that helped Israel, including the United States. In response, oil went up 300% to $12 a barrel in a short period of time. But that was a Saudi-led boycott, and these days Saudi Arabia has a much better relationship with Israel. Same goes for the other oil-rich Gulf monarchies. 
Both oil and defense went up indiscriminately, uh, most likely because of the moronic ETF-ization of the market. I mean, that's what enables Huntington Ingalls, a Navy shipbuilder, to go up as much as General Dynamics, which I have no doubt will be called upon to provide more tanks if Israel finds itself shorthanded. Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman have enough needle-moving electronics, but I doubt Lockheed's joint strike fighter will be called into action given the fact that Hamas doesn't have an air force. In the end, this is not 1973, where Israel was up against conventional armies from Egypt and Syria. This time, they're putting down an insurgency, which requires different hardware. Now, should oil have rallied even more than what we saw today? Now, that's a legitimate and big question. The Permian Basin in Canada can equal the current demand for our country. The producers in the Permian are basically free-riding on OPEC Plus and Russia's production cuts. Uh, they seem determined not to overproduce, thereby destroying these higher prices. So it seems reasonable to believe that oil should go higher. But to me, it's surprising that oil isn't up more given its recent retreat. That, that smacks more of the concern I had last week when I said that a huge part of the earlier oil rally was simply short covering. It's natural gas propelled by the catch-up trade because there's no cold weather to speak of that had an especially good day. Given that there are so few pure natural gas plays, let me point out again that the winner is Coterra, where CEO Tom Jordan told us on Mad Money that he's got plenty of oil and plenty of gas. But he was pivoting to natural gas because of his dollar cost. Since then, the gain in natural gas is about 27% less than two months. It exceeds the gain in oil. Such a good call. What about the rest of the market? I found Jefferson's comments surprising because I was thinking that there'll be no cessation in the Fed's fight against inflation. Jefferson's comments gave a green light to all sorts of buying of tech, Once again, led by the Magnificent Seven. It is worth asking whether the extended rally in Apple maybe signals that the iPhone 15 is doing much better than expected or certainly much better than the bears keep talking about. It is worth pondering whether Israel is just a distraction. I hate to say it like that, but at least from an investing perspective, it's not like Ukraine, which is a major source of food and caused sanctions against Russia, an important source of oil and gas. Ukraine represents 13% of the world's calories. Both oil and food, along with housing costs, represent the remaining holdouts in the Fed's battle against inflation. We often forget how much our inflation problem was caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. By contrast, Israel is one of our most important allies, but it's a very small country, so the financial impact is not that large, even as the symbolic impact is enormous. Now, I lamented the lack of bull marks last week versus, say, just a few months ago before we realized that inflation was a lot more persistent than we thought and rates were much lower. The strength in the market overall remains in the companies with the best balance sheets, including the Magnificent Seven. Now, I'll give you more of the other winners from higher interest rates later in the show. It's a really good list. So is the market heartlessly indifferent to the pictures, the cries, the shooting of innocence at a concert that triggered massive retaliation? Let me put it this way. The market is about stocks. Stocks are about companies. Companies are about prospects. And there's nothing here that impacts those prospects save the possibility of this expanding into a war between Israel and Iran. The bottom line, this is a situation where sadness begets more sadness, but no selling on its own, because Wall Street's much more interested in what we heard from the vice chair of the Fed on the eve of earnings season, and it cares more about corporate profits. Bob in Texas, Bob. Yeah, Jim. uh, Yes. I've been, can you hear me? You sound great, Bob. Okay, uh, I've been uh, purchasing club stock NVIDIA for the last few years, Excellent. and uh, it, the last purchase I made was at 439. Okay, and uh, I know that uh, years ago Apple split at 350, and I don't know what considerations are made, but do you think there's a possibility? Uh, I know one thing is it, it's it's so that there it makes it more affordable to people to buy when they split. 
Uh, do you think there's any possibility that NVIDIA might split? Well, it's a great question, Bob, because you're absolutely right. I mean, I've been pro-split. A lot of the professionals just say, Jim, come on, you have one pencil, you're breaking it two, do you have two pencils, you have a half pencil, half pencil. Here's the way I look at it, exactly the way Bob does. And I wish NVIDIA would split, but that's up to Jensen Wong and his team. And they play it very close to the vets and have given me no insight on what they might do. Can we go to Callaway in Tennessee? Callaway. Hey, Jim. How are you? I am good, Callaway. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for taking my question. Of course. Um, I was I was curious. Uh, since its IPO, Arm has stayed above its initial trading price of 51 and is now at a P.E. ratio of 106 almost. And it's only slightly lower than NVIDIA's P.E. of 110. My question is, do we see this P.E. come down after the lockout period, maybe? And what is the fair value for the stock, in your uh, opinion? Or great should, question. Should it actually yeah. have? Yeah. Now, uh, here's what happened today. All the, you know, the vast majority of analysts recommended the stock. I think the stock is, uh, can, can trade higher. Maybe it can trade up to 60, but uh, the lockup was certainly going to release a lot of stock. But uh, that's not what I'm concerned about. I like what you just said, which is it trades at a higher price range multiple than NVIDIA. And that is wrong. It's just traded a lower multiple than NVIDIA. NVIDIA is a faster, better rower. Max in Florida. Max. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course, Max. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm Thank calling you. today about Academy Sports, ticker ASO. While the retail sector has sold off due to inventory shrinkage, ASO has seemed to avoid this issue. They're in the process of expanding from 270 to 400 stores in the next four years. Given that all their stores are profitable within 12 months, and with their current year earnings near $8 a share, should I expect future earnings near $12 a share? And if so, would that make this stock cheap due to their debt-to-equity being about 0.33? It is incredibly cheap right now, but I could have said that since uh, the spring. And all the stock has really done is go down. I think this is a level where I would start buying, but not aggressively, because this thing is getting clubbed. All right. Wall Street can usually calculate things pretty instantly and immediately. But today we started to see that stocks are much less impacted by international conflict, no matter how horrendous, and much more swayed by the words from a, a Fed chieftain. On Man Money Tonight, with the Fed signaling a higher for longer strategy when it comes to rates, we need to adjust our strategy. So tonight I'm focusing on companies with strong financial positions that I think could do well in this market. And over today, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson published a bearish note, what else is new, that this market could get uglier. So I called up one of our favorite technicians, Larry Williams, to get his take on the matter. And you do not want to miss that big call. And Birkenstock is ready to walk into the New York Stock Exchange this week when it IPOs. So should you try this one on for size, or could it be a poor fit for your portfolio? I'm sharing where I come down. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I've said it before and I'll say it again. When you're picking stocks, nothing is more important than the bond market. For the better part of the last 15 years, with interest rates at or near zero, it's really not something we've needed to worry about. But we're no longer in an ultra-low rate environment. With interest rates at their highest level in 16 years, 
and the Fed signaled that they plan to keep short rates higher for longer. We all need to adjust our strategy to find winners. Specifically, this set of favors companies that don't need to borrow money. Borrowing money has rapidly become much more expensive over the past few months. So if your business needs financing in order to operate at peak performance, I got to tell you, you got a problem. In the most extreme cases, it can be an existential problem. Does the company have so much debt that it might fold under the weight of its obligations now that refinancing has become a lot more costly? Some of them are definitely out there. More frequently, higher interest rates simply mean higher expenses, possibly for years to come. That's why tonight and tomorrow, I want to take some time to explain what this looks like from both sides of the issue. Tonight, we're going to start with some companies that are now at an advantage thanks to their strong financial position. Then tomorrow, we'll follow up with some examples of the opposite. Give you a look at certain sectors and individual companies that are now in worse shape thanks to their reliance on external financing. Now, the good news for tonight's challenge, picking the relative winners in this environment, is that a little over a week ago, Goldman Sachs' terrific chief U.S. equity strategist, David Costin, just did much of the legwork for us. In his U.S. weekly kickstart note, Invaluable, published 10 days ago, Costin wrote that as cost inflation fades away, elevated borrowing costs are starting to look like the largest risk to corporate profits, meaning that they'll go, if the profits go down, the stocks will probably go down. Now, on that same note, Costin and his team highlighted a group of S&P 500 stocks that stand out because of their low vulnerability to higher borrowing costs. His team picked out 21 companies with a net leverage ratio below one. What's that? An interest before an earnings before interest and taxes to interest expense, earnings for interest taxes to interest expense ratios. That means a division in the top quartile of the S&P 500 and EBITDA growth variability in the bottom quartile. We're trying to find out who's the most solvent. Now, not all of the names that made Costin's list are automatic buys. Some of them I don't like because I, I, having a strong financial position might not be enough. There are some true cyclicals in here and those that are not the kind of stocks shown in a Fed mandated slowdown, even though these are great companies. I want you to think payroll processors like ADP, Paychex, or trucking companies like J.B. Hunt are not for me. Now, I don't even like J&J because of its litigation risk. That said, many others are absolutely worth buying here. Now, I've eliminated a bunch more names to get ones I'm really comfortable with and so that you can really focus on just a handful. This is very important. That was my own work. Let's take through them. Now, I want to start with one that was so obvious to me. It's Costco. It's one of the six names on Goldman's list with a negative net leverage ratio, meaning that they have more cash than debt. Regular viewers know that Costco is a longtime Kramer fave and a position in my charitable trust. Right now, it's one of the few retailers that's doing just fine, along with Walmart and Amazon. Crucially, while the rest of the retail is being eaten a lot by theft, Costco's membership club model discourages professional shoplifters. I mean, you can't even get in the store without paying up for a membership. There are a million other stores that are a lot easier to rob. At the same time, when I see the company's big cash position, I think they might pay another special dividend. The last one was paid in late 2022. It's just a matter of when. Second, there's Cadence Design. Oh, I like this company so much. It makes software that helps uh, semiconductor companies design their chips. We just had them on the show in May. I like this one because Cadence software has become almost mandatory in the semiconductor industry. They give their customers a huge competitive edge. Honestly, I'd like this stock in any market. But it looks especially good now that the semiconductor business appears to be coming out of its down cycle. Plus, it doesn't hurt that Cadence has more cash than debt. Hey, by the way, it's a good partner of NVIDIA's, too. Third, we got one of my favorite, BlackRock, okay? That's the largest asset manager in the world with some of your favorite ETFs, including the industry-leading iShares franchise. Right now, they're winning as money migrates into fixed-income ETFs and mutual funds. They got a lot of heft there. I feel very good about this one, but given that BlackRock reports on Friday, let's see how they're doing. 
Next, two of the nation's largest drug distributors, what a business that can be, made the, these were both on Costa's list, Cardinal Health and McKesson. Now, this is an interesting group because it's quite lucrative, but it's also an easy target for politicians looking for a scapegoat for higher drug prices. Arguably, the drug distributors don't need to exist because at the end of the day, they're middlemen. But I say, who cares? Cardinal and McKesson keep printing cash, which is how they ended up on the list. I don't think their business models are at risk here, even if there's some headline risk as we go into 2024. For now, though, they're cheap stocks that won't be hurt by higher rates. What else? While most fintech is dying here because these companies depend on low rates, there's one stealth fintech that certainly meets the my criteria. It's called Jack Henry and Associates, which makes the technology many banks use for their online banking operations. Their core customers include 25% of U.S. banks and 45% of credit unions. Basically, they help older institutions stay competitive online. Another great business, one that's incredibly steady, hence its placement on our list of costs list. Now, there's another financial play that made Costa's list, CME Group, which you know is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, Chicago Board of Trade, and the New York Mercantile Exchange. These guys have benefited from higher interest rate contract volume stemming from the Fed's fight against inflation. In other words, they're middlemen. They trade, okay? No dependency on financing. That's what I care about. Finally, long-time Kramer fave IDEX Laboratories showed up on kind of mysterious to me on Costa's list. I love to see that because this stock could use a shot in the arm. IDEX makes veterinary diagnostic equipment. It's not doing that well. After more than tripling from its lows in 2020, uh, 2020 lows in its late summer 2021 highs, the stock sold off hard because the pet plays were widely seen as COVID stocks. IDEX has been making a nice recovery late, uh, late last year and in the first half of this year, but it's turned ice cold since late July, despite reporting a beaten race quarter in early August. I don't think the humanization pets is going away, though. Meanwhile, IDEX can weather any near-term squalls thanks to the financial qualities that landed on the company that got them on Costin's list. Not my favorite of the group. I look at all these, and I keep coming back to this one, Costco, as the one I like the most. Here's the bottom of the line. With this new era of higher for longer interest rates, I think we're going to be spending more time worrying about which companies will be hurt by higher borrowing costs. At the same time, we'll flock to companies that don't rely on external financing, like the ones I just recommended. Stay tuned tomorrow for the biggest losers from the same phenomena. Med Money is back after the break. Coming up, in the summer, our chartists predicted the October 6th rally to the day. Kramer tackles the technicals for a clearer look at what's to come next. It would have been very easy to be negative at the start of today's trading session, with the price of oil soaring in response to the shockingly sudden war in Israel on all those horrifying images of Hamas massacring civilians. Plus, while the market rebounded from its lows last week, we're still in shaky ground. Just this morning, Mike Wilson at Morgan Stanley published a bearish note arguing that the market's lack of breath, the fact that very few groups are working, signals that things will get uglier. But we just spent last month working our way signally lower, and stocks finally seemed to find a bottom last week. So I'm not ready to throw in the towel. Mike Wilson says that in times of uncertainty, you need to consult the technicals, the charts. I agree with him. However, there are many ways to look at the charts, and some of them have a better track record than others. That's why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Larry Williams. He's a legendary technician and market historian who's been the top expert in this space since I was going through puberty. Larry's written over a dozen books and created a ton of proprietary technical indicators. We're going to use some of them. Many of them are named after him. More important, he's the guy who warned us that August and the bulk of September 
would be awful. Great call. He predicted the stock spike bottom in late September with a rebound coming in October, although he several times told me, look, he could be a little bit early. And that's exactly what we've been seeing so far. Nice call. Don't forget, Williams has made some brilliant bullish calls when everybody else was feeling extremely bearish. He's one of the few people who got it right in April of 2020 when Wall Street was so convinced the entire economy would collapse under the weight of endless lockdowns. So now that stocks started rebounding in the first week of October, kind of what he said, just as he predicted, what comes next? Okay, Larry's always looking for cycles that seem to repeat themselves over and over in the market. And that's how he knew September would get ugly. It was what he told him we rebound in October. What he said, this stuff is incredible. Take a look at the chart of the Dow Jones Industrial Average with the most dominant cycle he spotted going back to early last year. Generally speaking, the Dow has followed the direction of this cycle. You can take a look. Look, you can see red goes up, then this goes up. What happens if you project the recent cycle forward? Get this. Check out the Dow going back to the beginning of the year with a cycle in red. Again, generally speaking, Williams points out that the cycle has been a good guide to where the market was headed. And this cycle has already bottomed. It suggested that the Dow will make a decisive turn for the better uh, by the end of the month. So this is kind of what he was saying. He was like right here. He wasn't sure exactly when it would go up. Wanted to be early so that we'd be in. Let's really zoom into the Dow over the last couple months with the same daily cycle in red. Now you really see what we're talking about. Based on this pattern, Williams expects the market to be trading a bit of a, a range, a little range bound, okay, uh, but with an upside bias before we get to a very powerful rally at the end of October. So stay in. Now, if you look at the Dow's weekly chart going back to March of last year, Williams points out that there's a longer-term 117-week cycle. This is dominated for a long time, and it usually does a good job of pointing out key moments where the index is likely to change its trajectory. And the 117-week cycle says that we should expect real upside action in the Dow starting now. Of course, it's not just the cycle forecast that make him feel constructive here. Williams also likes to take his cue from the Watergate investigation. That's my own view. And he likes to follow the money. See, Williams is often skeptical of what most chart watchers see as conventional wisdom. In his view, they're taking their cue from unproven chart patterns. Instead, he prefers to look for Data. That's why I say he's a market historian, not just a technician. For example, the CFTC's weekly commitment of traders report, we call it the Cotton Report, which shows you what small speculators, large speculators, and commercial hedgers are doing in the futures market. Small speculators are home gamers. Large speculators are money managers. And commercial hedgers are businesses, people in business that have a much more direct connection to the futures that they're trading. The commercials aren't making bets. They're executing a business strategy. And that's why Williams likes to watch what the commercial hedgers are doing in the futures market. In his view, they alone are the smart money. They must be followed. So take a look at this chart of the Dow Jones Industrial Average Futures with the net long or short position of the commercial. See this? We look at this, and then right here, notice Williams, okay? And the commercial hedgers down at the bottom in red. So this is what we're going to be focused on for a second. Even though you're constantly hearing bearish commentary about this market, pretty endlessly, right? Williams points out that the commercial hedgers have been loading up on stocks of late. That's not an opinion. It is fact. Look at this. This is a genuine, huge buy by the people who are in the know. Right now, the commercial hedgers are net long the Dow Jones futures by 29,549 contracts, and that is real money. What does it mean when the commercials are this heavily invested? Well, look at the last three times that their net long position was at these levels. Okay? Look at this. One. Two, three. Well, I would say it pretty much called it. This is the best one. Uh, each time it preceded a nice rally, although some of these rallies were a lot bigger than others. Sure, it's still a bullish sign. Remember, we're just, it's a, 
conglomeration. We're taking an amalgam of different indicators. So why try to read the tea leaves of charts when we can cut to the chase to see what the smart money's doing? Larry was actually the first analyst to write about the commitments of Trader's Report. That was way back in the 70s. And we know for a fact that it's withstood the test of time. Now, because market volume has uh, fluctuation in the commercial net long or short position is an absolute number, not irrelevant. Williams constructed his own commitment of traders indicators to make more equal comparisons over many different periods. Check out what this looks like with the weekly chart of the Dow futures. Now we're going back to 2017. That's important. It's going to take in some really interesting moments. The red line on the bottom is the Williams Cock Commercials Index, the uh, metric he created to gauge the stuff. Basically, it shows the level of bullishness among commercial hedgers based on the commitment of traders' data. It ranges from 0%, where they're net, not buyers, to 100%, where they're heavily long. Look at this. As of last Thursday, when we processed the most recent commitment of traders' report, his commercials index stood 91% bullish. That's extremely positive. No wonder we bounced today. By the way, if you want to know more about these indicators, you got to go to Larry's website. It's called IReallyTrade.com. So here's the bottom line of what I think is an amazing exposition. While some technicians claim that the market's about to get real ugly, when you consult the true expert, the person who really understands the history, Larry Williams, his favorite indicators suggest that we could be looking at some serious upside by the end of the month. When it comes to the stock market, he'd be a buyer here, not a seller. And is it any wonder that we could rally this morning if you looked at these charts? Now I want to go to phone calls. I want to start with Larry in Florida. Larry. Hey, Jim, just want to wish the world peace and some stability in Israel, first of all. I want to thank you for all your advice. Jim, you have literally made me rich. No joke. Uh, You're very very kind. You know, I had a lot. I met some people this weekend when I did my uh, signing for my wife's Fosforo Fosforo Mezcal. And a lot of people said that. And my wife just said that maybe I'm doing okay. It was really nice because my wife sometimes wrestles with the idea that I work too hard. I say I work for you and it doesn't matter how hard I work. So how can I help? So I really appreciate it. Jim, one of my favorite topics you would talk about is what you refer to as accidental high yielders. Correct. This has been the cornerstone of my investment thesis. With a recent pullback, this Kramer favorite now garners a better than 8% yield. Jim, I'm ready to back up the truck on ENB. Tell me your thoughts. Okay, I think ENB's down a lot, mostly because I'm going to put it in two parts. One was because the, the yield was no longer as good in terms of safety after the five-year uh, and 10-year and 20-year all exploded higher. But the other reason, I mean, I got to tell you, this is really what I'm most worried about. They made a deal. I want Greg Ebel to come on. They made a deal that I actually don't understand. They made a deal with Dominion. And I literally don't, I mean, I said, I don't understand. I was like, I can't get it. You need to have management come on and explain it better. They spent about seven minutes on it. I need at least 15 to understand what the heck is going on. So, Greg, you come on, man, money. We would welcome you. How about we go to John in Virginia? John. Hey, Jim. It's really great talking to you. I'm a club oh, member. Thanks, and oh, yes. First time, call, first time caller. And I just first of all want to thank you for your advice and guidance and for teaching us to be better investors. Well, thank you. I hope um, you'll be on the call Wednesday at noon, which well, is be a very important right. day. Yes. Thank you. Yes, sir. And my question today is really on RTX, uh, as you'll recall, it's formerly Raytheon. Right. I started buying shares in the mid $90 range and, and been buying a few additional shares as it's drifted down into the 70, 70s. Um, I, I think this decline was probably sparked by the Pratt & Whitney engine issue. But, Absolutely. Uh, maybe, maybe more insights on that. But, but in any case, um, 
I mean, they should have a pretty good book of business given the current state of, of world politics. And I'm just wondering what your take is on, on RTX. Well, I'll tell you, first, thank you for the kind comments, John. I did wonder whether the stock could even bottom at any price. We have found the price now. I now see when I bottom like that, I want you to hold on. Can't ask you to buy more, but I want you to hold on. And before I would have said, you know, forget it, there's no level, right? The favorite indicators of expert charters and market historian Larry Williams suggest we could be looking at some serious upside by the end of the month. And this month itself will have an upper bias. When it comes to the stock market, he'd be a buyer here, not a seller. Now, much more made money, including my take on the Birkenstock IPO. From on running to Crocs, we have been all over the footwear stocks since we know you care about them. So where does Perkins stock fit in? I'll give you my take. Then there's always a market somewhere. And even in this tape, I've spotted a big one that can't be ignored. I'll reveal it. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Later this week, the gradually recovering IPO market will be put to the test when Birkenstock comes public. Yeah, Birkenstock, the German sandal maker, plans to sell $1.5 billion worth of stock. And I think this one is worth focusing on, both because it's big, but also more importantly because it's a little unusual. See, Birkenstock and its investment bankers are pursuing a pretty aggressive valuation by any standard. <clears throat> this weekend, Reuters reported that there's enough demand for the deal to come at the high end of the proposed price range. I was shocked at that. That's $49 per share, which would imply a market capitalization of under, just under $10 billion. Hey, that's more than double what Birkenstock's current private equity owner paid to acquire it just two and a half years ago. Do you think it really increased that much in value? Long story short, if you want to buy the stock after it comes public, you really, you really got to like this story plenty. Otherwise, it is just simply unjustifiable. <laughs> Frankly, it's almost never a good idea to buy something right after the IPO. I know people are going to do it. I wish you won't. People are going to use market orders. I wish they wouldn't. You typically get a better price if you just wait until it cools down. But that goes double for Birkenstock. This year's other big IPOs were deliberately underpriced to get people interested. That is not the case here. See, we're starting to progress. So what's the story? Everybody knows Birkenstock's the ultimate hippie brand turned yuppie brand. These things have seen a surge of popularity in recent years, large part because of the pandemic. That won them a whole new generation of customers, including my wife. Of course, there's no way to tell if there's a permanent thing or if it's just a fad. We know younger people's tastes can quickly change. You know, they're like... That said, Birkenstock's been putting up some truly magnificent numbers, great growth, solid profitability, margins headed the right direction. See, about a decade ago, the Birkenstock family, which controlled the company from its founding in 1774 until it sailed to a private equity firm in 2021, finally brought in outside management, including a current CEO, Oliver Reeser. He's the new, uh, the new team professionalized the business and growth soared. In 2021, Birkenstock put up 32% revenue growth. In 2022, it was 29%. And for the last nine months, ending in June, it was 21%. Now, let's talk about the private equity owner here, L. Catterton, which is partly owned by LVMH. That's the French luxury goods Colossus. Since buying Birkenstock in 2021, L. Catterton and LVMH have aggressively promoted the brand, including two collaborations with Christian Dior. That's another LVMH property. It's worked. From 2020 through 2022, Birkenstock's average selling price grew at a 16% compound annual clip, while average selling prices were up another 15% in the nine months ending this June. Ah, uh, but there's a flip side to these numbers. While Birkenstock put up terrific revenue growth thanks to higher prices, their unit growth is a lot less impressive. 
It's up just 5% year over year in the nine months ending this June. Now, that's not something you want to see as the global economy slows down. Something that's going to make it harder for them to keep raising prices. Something you should be very worried about. What else? Berkshire's got big expansion plans in Asia, which currently is a tiny part of the business. Asia Pacific, the Middle East, and Africa only make up 10% of sales. I honestly have no idea how that's going to go over. But LVMH has been incredibly successful at growing its brands in China. Check the positive on this one. The other thing the company's done is expand its margins, uh, and not just through price hikes. They've rationalized their roster of wholesale partners, grown their own direct-to-consumer business to cut out the retail middleman, and cleaned up the supply chain. As a result, Birkenstock's gross margin has expanded from 55% in 2020 to 61% now. Between the revenue growth and the margin expansion, Birkenstock was able to put up impressive earnings growth from 2020 through 2022. Although their net profit was down 20% year over year in the nine months ending this June, I'm calling that a little worrisome. See, pros and cons. What else do you need to know? Okay, because this is a private equity IPO, less than 11 million shares are being sold by Birkenstock to raise money, with L. Catterton selling 21.5 million shares to take profits. Even after the deal, the private equities firm will still own 80% of the business, so they're the controlling shareholder for certain. Like so many private equity outfits, they loaded up Birkenstock with debt. Company used some of the proceeds to clean up its balance sheet, but it's still not going to be great. That's a real drag on profitability going forward. Doesn't help that a huge chunk of this float is floating rate debt, which is the last thing you want when rates are soaring. However, I still expect Birkenstock to have an explosive IPO. See, this is an iconic brand, and much of its shares are already spoken for. Remember what I said? It's going to open up too high. Of the $1.5 billion offering, $325 million worth of stock will be bought by the Arnaud family. They're the main owners of LVMH, really smart people. That's somewhat encouraging because it indicates the family wants to stay involved with the business, even as their affiliated private equity firm, El Catter, begins its exit. And this is what something is going to be used to come, really to combat any things I talked about that were negative. Meanwhile, hedge fund and Norwegian sovereign wealth fund would buy another $300 million worth of the offering. So 42% of the shares are being sold are already spoken for. And that's one reason I suspect Birkenstock stock could soar right out of the gate. I have no reason to doubt the Reuters report that the deal will price at the high end of the range at 49 bucks. And with much of the IPO already spoken for, I would be surprised if it pops to the high 50s, maybe even the low 60s where I would be very, very wary. Don't buy, don't buy, don't buy, don't buy, don't buy. Even if we use the high end of the price range, $49, we're talking about a $10 billion market cap for Birkenstock. And an enterprise value of more than $11 billion if we annualize the earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization numbers for the nine-month period ending in June. We could be talking about 516 million euros in EBITDA this year, which translates to 542 million. That would give Birkenstock an enterprise multiple of 20.5, that's the enterprise value divided by the EBITDA, something we use for companies with a lot of debt, like this one. That kind of valuation would put Birkenstock near the high end of for what Wall Street's willing to pay for footwear and apparel companies. How about some comparison? Nike's at 20, Decker's is at 15.5, Crocs is at 6. Only on holdings is more expensive on this basis. That is an enterprise multiple of 27.5. But that's because the Swiss running shoemaker has a much, much faster growth rate. If Wall Street decides that Birkenstock deserves to trade more than like Crocs, well, then look out below. And again, that's where I'd be trading at, at the high end of the price range, 49 bucks. Assuming a sizable first day spike, the stock's likely to get much more expensive than that. And then I don't count this buying. In the end, Birkenstock has a great product. One that, they, they, that even found its way into the incredibly popular Barbie movie. But you need to be very careful with the stock here for the IPO on Wednesday. I worry that it'll be too expensive right out of the gate and will only get more expensive in the initial 
feeding frenzy. Bottom line, lots of IPOs have had hot starts, but that almost always ends badly for the people who buy the stock in the open market with a market order. If you can get a piece on the actual deal, of course, that's another story. But if you're just buying it like everybody else in the open market, I think you're going to get absolutely pummeled. I say you're better off on the sidelines waiting for the stock to cool down because it probably will. Bad Money is back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Daddy. Time for the lightning round. I want to start with Brandon in New Jersey. Brandon. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? On this I'm doing uh, okay. Day? Yeah. Are you doing anything for Halloween? Uh, undetermined, frankly. I may have to think okay. about that with my daughters. What's happening? Um, I have a doc that um, I, uh, I, I, uh, I don't know what it does. Uh, Viva system. Viva, what do you think about it? Uh, it, it does this. It's a cloud-based system that, that actually is really very powerful in the health business. It hardly ever misses its quarter. And it is a buy, even though it's a high-price earnings mobile. Let's go to Miles in Florida. Miles. What do you say, Jim? How about a big New York Jet booyah? Well, I got the Eagles playing them next week. Booyah. <laughs> Miles is funny. All right. Let's, uh, come on, comedian. What do you got for me? How about UFB, U.S. Bank? Uh, you know what? Bank, I would love to recommend this bank. I think it's an absolutely terrific bank. Uh, you know, honestly, it yields 6%. It should bottom. But these regional banks are so bad that I just can't recommend them because I'm afraid people buy them and they'll go down again when they report. Let's go to Deke in Pennsylvania. Deke. Hey, Jim. Good to hear your voice. Same. Uh, what about... Uh, super microcomputer. What's up with that? Is that going to keep going up? Go yes, down? it is. I think it does absolutely. It's at the right end of where things are. And look, it, the generative AI, AI. It's it's why people buy the stock. Let's go to Mark in Iowa. Mark. Hi, Jim. How are you this evening? I am good, Mark. How are you? Not too bad at all. Uh, it's no secret that utilities are an un- unwanted sector right now. Totally. This utility company recently sold $1.5 billion worth of renewable energy and is using this money to help streamline and de-risk. It's selling at a PB under 19 and has a 4.6% dividend. What do we need to see to make AEP look attractive again? Great question because it's really well run, but I think the problem is if it's 4.5% yield, what happens if you can get 5% in a 10-year a 20-year piece of paper. I just think that that's just a better deal. Stock's got to come down more in order to make it cheaper versus bonds. Let's go to Frank in New York. Frank. Yeah, Jim. Frank from Pelham. Uh, I sort of really like the semis here, Jim. The economy is really moving along pretty nicely, and almost everything that's made today has got chips in it. It's unbelievable. Absolutely right. And, and I think Marvell's in a lot of great areas, and the management looks pretty I agree with you. Matt Murphy's doing Wait. a terrific job. There are people who feel like that away from its optical business, which is very much involved with, uh, with NVIDIA, that things aren't as strong. I think you buy some here, and then you buy some if it comes lower. In other words, I am not all in at this level. I need to go to Stacy in Georgia. Stacy, Dr. Kramer, how are you? I am good, Stacy. How about you? 
I'm doing well, thank you. I'm calling to pick your brain today on Snowflake. All right, very high multiple stock. Uh, should report good earnings next year. I think Frank Slootman is doing terrific stuff. You will be able to rent the cloud. But I also am concerned about high multiple stocks, and I don't want to go all in on this one. I like it, though. Now let's go to Abid in Ohio. Abid. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Abid. What's happening? Big Booyah from Ohio. Thank you Thank for you. taking my call. Absolutely. Thank you. How can I help? Jim, I'm calling about a stock that's down big this year, but starting to show some recovery. Jim, what are your thoughts on Gray Television Network? Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. TV. I'll tell you, I just can't go there. I'm just, I, I, I'm not afraid because that's not my style. It's just the TV is so hard. For instance, we own uh, Disney for the Chapel Trust. Got uh, Nelson Peltz buying 30 million shares, and it's up today and probably be down tomorrow. And by the time I get to the Wednesday meeting, I'm sure people say, listen, I don't care anymore. Craziness. Brett in Texas. Brett. Hey, what's happening, Jim? How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How about you? Hey, doing all right. Big booyah. Uh, calling today about uh, TK. I'm just trying to find a bull market, my man. What do well, you that is the it? best of the, and it's been, I remember when it came public, it's the best crude oil carrier. Uh, I'm not going to dissuade you. I think it's fine. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, bond yields can hobble all sorts of bull markets. So why is one sector in particular resisting the headwind? Kramer cracks the code next. Last week I talked about the destruction of so many bull markets. Thanks to the collapse in bond prices and spike in yields. What I didn't talk about was the emergence of one of the greatest bull markets of our era. The bull market in cybersecurity. For the longest time, it seemed like the actual consequences of being hacked were obscured by our, the success of our systems because we stopped hearing about them. But then the SEC issued a ruling in July of this year saying the companies now have four days to reveal a hack. Just four days. Ever since then, we've learned that these data breaches are everywhere, and they're much more costly than we thought. Just consider the list. Two weeks ago, Johnson Controls revealed that it, quote, experienced disruption in portions of its internal information infrastructure and applications, end quote. The company assessing the damage, including whether the hack could impact the timing of the results. They're not done yet. Hey, by the way, Johnson Controls has a number of contracts with the federal government, including Homeland Security. MGM and Caesars both got hacked. Caesars paid the ransom. The bad guys initially wanted $30 million, but settled for about half that. MGM didn't pay the ransom and ended up taking about a $100 million hit as check-ins and mobile applications were hobbled, among other things. The worst hit, though, was Clorox, which gave us an earnings warning that took the first fiscal quarter numbers down drastically, all because of processing delays and significant product outages. Making things more ominous from the verbiage of the statement, uh, it didn't even seem like they're finished rooting out the hackers. Into the void, we have some very specific winners, companies that attempt st- to stop the hackers with various tools that make it harder to penetrate an operation. Now, the Charitable Trust owns Palo Alto Networks, P-A-N-W, which offers soup to nuts protection. It's widely perceived as the gold standard for the wall-to-wall. It's got wall-to-wall coverage, cloud, on-prem, doesn't matter. We pick Palo Alto, as we'll explain at our investing club meeting noon Wednesday, because we believe the hackers prefer to go after companies with less thorough protection. Since it's simply easier for them to get in. I want you to think of it like this. If a car thief is looking for targets at a parking lot, he'll most likely avoid the ones that have the doors locked and go after the ones that were carelessly left to open. 
Hiring Palo Alto Networks is like locking the digital door. I think CrowdStrike offers similar protection. Like Palo Alto, it has tremendous growth and, in its case, offers a broad array of cloud-based cybersecurity solutions. Now, we had Octus Todd McKinnon on not that long ago. His company tracks an identity to keep outsiders from getting in. He mentioned that MGM is a client, which I thought would hurt Octus stock. But then McKinnon made it very clear that you can't stop hacks like these unless you train your employees not to help others who may be masquerading as their co-workers. No cybersecurity can stop that kind of lassitude. Cybersecurity bull market extends to Zscale, or ZS. Oh, boy, do they love this one. It's another company that can block hackers with threat protection that helps deny entry to those who don't belong inside. Zscaler hit its 52-week high today, and uh, right now it's probably the most loved stock in the entire cohort. You always want to buy the stocks of companies and industries where demand is most rabid. The litany of hacks has made it clear that you either pay a king's ransom to the bad guys or you see your earnings slaughtered. It's your call. No wonder businesses are willing to spend fortunes to protect themselves. Hence why the cybersecurity stocks can't be beaten right now, especially when we've seen how worldwide turmoil can easily catch the authorities off guard. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you to find it just for you right here on Mad Bunny. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last fall starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer.